0: Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. This week, we hop a tiny train to discover the miniature wonders of a West Virginia model railroad club that faces an uncertain future.
1: This is built to be permanent, so it would
0: be really hard to break it up. We also visit Madison, West Virginia, a former coal community looking to reinvent itself.
2: Main Street, to me, when I was small, was so much fun. There were stores up and down the street, places to go. You always saw your friends and families.
0: And we visit a cemetery in Bluefield, Virginia to learn how racial segregation extended from cradle to the grave. When you
3: were like born in segregation, you couldn't be born in the white hospital. You weren't accepted at at your birth and you're not gonna be accepted at your death.
0: You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia, I'm Mason Adams. Model trains are a symbol of American childhood. Now, I never had a train set growing up, but I had friends who did, and one whose grandfather had a pretty elaborate setup. You can probably picture it. A circle of track, some plastic trees, a few die-cast cars sitting at the railroad crossing. Well, the model train setup in our next story takes things to a whole different scale. Here's Folkways reporter Zach Harold. Sometime in the
4: 1970s, a group of model railroad enthusiasts in Charleston, West Virginia, started getting together at the local Presbyterian church to talk trains. As the club grew, they found a bigger space where they could set up little dioramas for their engines and cars to traverse. But then in 1998, the Kanawha Valley Railroad Association got a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The county commission gave them some money to build a brick-and-mortar clubhouse, and members decided to use that new space to build one big, permanent model train layout. So, like the still-driving men who once tamed the West Virginia mountainsides, they set to work. They built huge tables where they laid track and wired it up to electricity. They crafted rock outcroppings from stacks of ceiling tiles that they roughed up with wire brushes. Though sometimes they'd just find a nice looking rock outside and add that to the layout. They built houses and businesses and barns, coal tipples, a replica of the Hawk's Nest Dam. They made thousands of trees from white polyfiber stuffing that they dipped in watered down school glue and rolled around in ground up green foam. Completing the layout took thousands of hours over about five years. But in the end, the club filled the space wall to wall with the communities of Charleston, Elkview, and Thurmond, all at 187th scale. And you can see it. Just stop by any given Sunday from 1 to 4 p.m. for the club's weekly open house. Admission is free, though donations are appreciated.
5: I mean, it's not only for us to enjoy, but it's also for, for the community to enjoy. I mean, not everybody can have one of these in their basement.
4: That's Anthony Parrish, He's been a member of the club since the late 1980s and helped build this place. He says club members have created a little game for visitors to help them fully experience the layout and all its detailed complexity.
5: Um, We have like a little uh, see if you can find it sheets that we give our visitors to see if they can find all the little detail that we have out here. There's one scene here where there's a uh, old moonshine still located in the forest, uh, in an area where you wouldn't really think to look for them any chance uh, You've got rock climbers and stuff. Uh, there's a barber shop.
4: Look really closely, and you'll start to notice something besides those Easter eggs. Is that a 57 Chevy crossing the Southside Bridge in Charleston? There's the Kanawha County Courthouse, but where are all the high-rise office buildings and Hadad Riverfront Park? Well, see, this model doesn't just capture the landscape of southern West Virginia. It captures a moment in time. A single sunny afternoon sometime in the late 1950s or early 1960s. The club's old timers did the majority of work on this model. And this was their way of remembering and reliving a little bit of their youth. But that doesn't mean the club is stuck in the past because as you stand there marveling at the West Virginia of yesteryear, along comes a Norfolk Southern Diesel locomotive, just like the one you might see chugging down the tracks today. It belongs to Austin West. At 15, he's one of the group's youngest members.
0: The engines that I have are ones that's actually been in my backyard that I've seen, and I'm really like, man, I wanna have that, and now I actually can.
4: Austin doesn't have a layout at home, so the one here at the clubhouse gives him somewhere to run his trains. And the club also has train cars and digital controllers that members can borrow, greatly reducing the barrier of entry for what can be a pretty expensive hobby. But that's not the only benefit newcomers like Austin get from paying their membership dues. He's learned a lot from the more experienced members. Because once you get into this hobby, it's not enough to just collect locomotives and rail cars. You've got to modify them.
0: The cars are mostly dirty and patched, stuff like that, and the front engine actually is supposed to get caught on fire, like the real thing.
4: It's all in making the locomotive look real. While Austin prefers modern trains, his buddy Joseph Watson is focused on the Norfolk and Western Railroad, trains that disappeared 20 years before he was even born. He has diesel and steam locomotives from the N&W line, which he's weathered with paint and special chalks using techniques he learned from other members.
6: Because everybody here does it different. You get
7: those different opinions and add it all into what you do, and it kind of makes your own own style on how you model.
4: It's allowed Joseph to recreate something he was never able to see in real life. He's 20, and the N&W went away in 1982 when it merged with Southern Railways to become Norfolk Southern.
7: It kind of makes you look back on how would these be back in the day? What would it be like to stand on the side of a railroad in the 1930s and see this coming down the tracks?
4: And there are his trains clacking right past Austin's modern Norfolk Southern locomotives in this snapshot of mid-century West Virginia, the past and present of American rail travel alive on a small scale. The future, though, is less certain. Jaeger International Airport sits just up the hill from Charleston's Coonskin Park, and a proposed multi-million dollar expansion of the runway there would require a whole section of the park to be filled in with dirt. And guess where the Kanawha Valley Railroad Association's clubhouse sits? The building isn't doomed just yet. The Federal Aviation Administration is still studying the project, but the train club has already started looking for new potential locations. Member Mike Reynolds said any move at all will mean the end to this gigantic model of southern West Virginia rail lines.
1: This is built to be permanent, so it would be really hard to break it up. And whatever we take will be partially destroyed in the process and have to be redone, but then we don't know what we're going to, so we don't know how much room we'll have, or,
4: or if any. It's a little ironic the very mode of transportation that once supplanted trains as Americans' go-to mode of cross-country travel now threatens to take away a place where that history is celebrated. But while club members are concerned about the future of their building and layout, no one seems too worried about the future of the club. New train fanatics are being born every day.
1: I got a grandson that's three years old and from the from the day that he had any idea what was going on, he has wanted to to, to fool with the trains. I mean, it's almost like a, you know a, a fox knows how to hunt. It's like they already know what trains are all about. I think it's magic. <laughs> I do I think it's magic.
4: In a very small version of Charleston, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachian.
0: First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing, and the youngin' dream of growing up to ride On a freight train, leaving town, not knowing where I'm bound, and no one can change my mind, but mama tried. The Kanawha Valley Railroad Association will host its 17th annual model training craft show in Charleston on March 11th and 12th. And it holds weekly open houses. That story is part of our Folkways Reporting Project, which covers arts and culture in the region. To see photos from the Kanawha Valley Railroad Association, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Appalachia's coal industry has had a pretty good last couple of years, all things considered. But a growing number of places have lost coal altogether. And after decades of relying on it, they're trying to figure out what's next. That's why West Virginia lawmakers established a grants commission last year. Funnel Federal Dollars to Coalfield Communities. WVPB's Randy OE recently visited Madison, West Virginia to hear about its efforts to build a new economy after coal. Deanna Howell says when she opened her Southern Pineapple
5: Boutique on Madison's Main Street, complete with a tin ceiling from the old Boone County Lumber Company, she knew she wouldn't make a fortune. She says she set up shop here to give hope to what many see as hopeless.
2: Main Street to me when I was small was so much fun. There were stores up and down the street, places to go to shop. You always saw your friends and families next door to where we are now. Used to be a department store, Ellis's department store. It was fantastic. It was two-sided. They had a shoe department.
5: Madison Mayor Buddy Hudson applauds Howell's pineapple persistence. His concern, it's just too little for too many big challenges
6: on his revitalization list. The top of my list would be some new storefronts on the Main Street of Madison so we could bring in new businesses
0: and then in turn would bring in tourism. We don't have the funds to take care of those uh, dilapidated buildings that's on Main Street. We don't have any infrastructure in place to get new uh, businesses on our Main Street area. So we're in, we're in need of financial, because the coal severance tax in the city of Madison has been gone for the last four or five years.
5: Revitalizing Madison's Main Street is why the Coalfield Communities Grant Facilitation Commission was created. The Downtown Coal Heritage Museum's potential and needs align word-for-word with the Commission's mission. Beyond upgrading basic infrastructure, water, sewer, broadband, the Commission is charged with entertaining proposals to preserve or enhance buildings of local historic interest. Museum co-founder Larry Ladato says, what once was their $25,000 annual share in coal severance tax funds has dwindled to $2,500.
6: If we don't get
5: another penny, we, we, we've got enough money to survive another year here. Our mission statement says it's, the museum is alive to preserve the past for future generations. And we have uh, so much memorabilia in this museum. It's unreal. We got a lot of good things that date back to the 1800s. We've got the Battle of Blair Mountains uh, uh, memorabilia. We've got uh, memorabilia from everywhere just about. And the people that bring the bring their uh, treasures in, they want to make sure that, that we're covered by insurance. Locals like Ledato enjoy home-cooked lunches at the West Madison Grocery. Locals like former Boone County Sheriff and Delegate Rodney Miller, who knows the challenges involved in finding matching funds for federal and private grants.
7: If you don't have uh, the basic money to operate on, how do you have that extra 10 to 20 percent to match up? Uh, which, I mean, it's just simple math. If you, don't, if you don't have the money up front to match for those grant applications, it's not going to fly. Uh, and and, and it's nothing extraordinary. Uh, It's a a common-sense approach. Grocery
5: owner Tony Young would like to expand his business and put some cabins up on the nearby land he owns for the Coalfield ATV trail riders desperate for lodgings. We've
6: got sewer and water problems. We've got drainage problems. We've got uh, buildings that are abandoned that need to be fixed, and, and people just don't have the money to do that.
5: It's not just providing the matching funds for these revitalization grants. This commission is charged with providing expert training in applying for and administering the grants. And those are big jobs for small communities. Mayor Hudson says Madison EMS Director Steve Bias pulls double duty to write city grant proposals. He writes our
0: grants for simple things. Like I said, they're not simple, but sidewalks and infrastructure drains around our town, but he's a one-man show. He's the only one right now that knows how to
7: write a grant that's on uh, our team. Bias Bias says grant-writing help help. will
5: be invaluable to Caulfield community governments like Madison. And I've been turned down for a lot of grants, but towns need help. I'm one person. I do several jobs, and there's just not enough time in the day for me to sit down and put the time into a grant that I need to. We have a swimming pool that has been vacant for years, and we wanted to turn it into a recreation area, but we just can't do it because we don't have the match to meet uh, the the monies or the grants that are out there. 80% of our storefronts now set vacant. Used to be this was a thriving town. But when you come into Madison, the first thing you see is a burnt building on the right, dilapidated buildings on the left, Grocer Tony Young feels the pulse of this community firsthand. You have the rivers,
6: the streams, the hunting, fishing, kayaking. Uh, you can do all of that here, the Hatfield and McCoy trails. If we got the infrastructure to fix the problems that we have and, and revitalize the buildings that are here, help small guys like myself expand and grow their business bigger, it would bring people here. We've got a huge coal heritage or, or history here. And people want to come see it, but there's nothing to go with it. You, we need to, to make the town better. Madison's
5: mayor was not familiar with the Coalfield Community's Grant Facilitation Commission before our visit here. Now he has a clear understanding and a simple request.
0: I would just like to ask the governor to please do what you promised, because the city of Madison needs your help. That story was part of West Virginia Public Broadcasting's program The Legislature Today. To hear more, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Later this month, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service will reclassify the northern long-eared bat as an endangered species. The bat's range extends from Canada, south of the Appalachian part of Alabama. For generations, the bat made its home in old trees, caves, and abandoned coal mines. But now the species is struggling to survive as the land around it changes. One bat habitat in Kentucky is under threat from a proposed natural gas pipeline. WFPL's Ryan Van Velzer reports from Bullock County, Kentucky.
8: It's a frigid December morning in the bottomlands at Bernheim Arboretum and Research Forest. The trees are bare, and with each step, we wade through the detritus, matting the forest floor.
4: Let's walk over here. Let's start looking at these two caves.
8: That's Conservation Director Andrew Berry. When the temperatures drop, Northern long-eared bats hibernate deep in abandoned mines and caverns like this one. These bats have wingspans up to 10 inches and bodies a little bigger than a wine cork. They wedge themselves into cracks and fissures deep inside caves, safe from predators. Come yeah,
7: over where I'm Do you see
8: him? Oh, I do. Yeah, hanging upside down just like you imagine a bat would. But it's not a northern long-eared bat. It's a tricolored bat. Another of the 13 species identified here at Bernheim, and one that U.S. Fish and Wildlife has proposed be listed as endangered. Both bats have seen population declines of more than 90% since 2006, when white-nose syndrome first arrived in the U.S. It's a fungus brought over from Europe that attacks bats' skin while they hibernate. It causes them to wake up and burn fat stored for winter, essentially starving them to death. These bats are found in 37 states, but white nose syndrome has decimated their populations. U.S. Fish and Wildlife listed the species as threatened in 2015. At January's end, the northern long eared bat will be listed as endangered. Barry says it might be caves like this where small populations find refuge.
4: You know, it could be that you're just going to have a few individuals that hang on in places like this usually what extinction looks like.
8: And white-nose syndrome isn't the only reason why these bats are going extinct. State wildlife extension specialist Matt Springer says mining, logging, and urbanization have all contributed.
9: You know, habitat never actually is, is created or destroyed. It just changes forms. And when it changes forms, there's going to be winners and losers.
8: Fish and Wildlife estimates bats contribute $3 billion a year to U.S. agriculture through pest control and pollination. Springer says drastic changes are needed to save both these and other species.
9: Yeah, we don't ever truly understand the role of a species within a system until we remove it completely.
8: Barry and I have been trekking through the upland forest looking for a very specific tree.
3: This is the one.
8: It's rotted and full of holes, with pieces of shaggy bark peeling back like wallpaper. Northern long-eared bats hide their pups in trees like this while they go out foraging for moths and beetles at night.
4: Uh, back in 2017, we tracked a bat from Cave Hollow over here onto this ridge near the Cedar Grove Wildlife Corridor. And that bat was found in this tree. We think it's probably a maternity roost.
8: The tree is less than a quarter mile away from the proposed route for a Louisville gas and electric natural gas pipeline that would cut through this conservation area. That project is currently on hold as federal officials search for critical habitat for endangered bat species.
4: To see a species like the northern long-eared bat, which just decades ago, would have been very common here at Bernheim. Uh, to see it plummet to the point of near extinction, it's just a, another one of these indicators
8: of the trouble that global biodiversity is having. I'm Ryan Van
0: Velzer in Louisville. Later in the show... We'll hear about the forty-sixth annual Appalachian Writers Workshop in Kentucky. Last year, the workshop was cut short when floodwaters swallowed the town of Hindman and damaged the Hindman Settlement School.
7: Once the the dust settled um, and we, you know, got campus and the community kind of back into a better position, and we immediately began the planning process again.
0: That's coming up later. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams.
6: Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor level degrees and 6 master level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.
8: Can make this world seem bright, only you.
6: Can
0: make the darkness bright, only you. Driving is a big deal. Getting a driver's license is a major rite of passage for millions of high school students. Cars symbolize freedom for people. But as we get older, there can come a time when we have to give up driving. It's not an easy decision. And it's even harder when an adult child has to convince a parent they need to hang up the keys. WVPB's Eric Douglas spoke with insurance expert Paul Moss, founder of Hey Driver, to gain some insight. What are some of the issues that come up with older drivers and, and
6: getting in, in the accidents?
9: Sure. I mean, there, there are things obviously physically father time can be unforgiving, right? So, so things like our ability to uh, react, right? Motor skills and, um, and, and how fast, you know, motor skill will will kick in um, happens uh, at a much slower pace. And also believe it or not, textings the influence of texting and driving isn't just for teenagers it actually goes all the way <laughs> through through the ages and generations of the population not only is that distracted driving far more prevailing than it's been it doesn't matter which population you're talking about but also what a lot of people don't know is let's say you have an inexperienced teenage driver who's texting while they're driving let's say they go through their red light right? And you swerve to avoid them, and you hit somebody. That's actually the at fault of the other driver, not the texture.
6: Car insurance rates increase for older drivers, just kind of ineb- inevitably. How does that work?
9: Uh, so effectively, effectively, you go through your prime years of driving in an insurance company's eyes um, when you're going from 35 to 55, 60, right? And you have very few accidents in this window, right? And so they're collecting their paycheck, right, with very little. Um, With very little to pay out, once you hit a certain age, they really want to get you off the books because they look at you now as a liability, and so and so effectively, what they're trying to do is every six months, every year, they'll drive up your price, and their goal is actually that you will shop your policy and that you will leave because they don't care about their paycheck anymore. They look at it as there's this is a this is a time bomb that's going to go off, and so um, and then eventually they will just flat cancel. People and make and force them to shop, but that that is how it works.
6: Interesting. Uh, is, there, is there a top end where they say we're, we're just not going to do it anymore?
9: It really depends on the company. You know, Allstate has their algorithm, State Farm has their algorithm, et cetera. And so each company is different. But what I can tell you is in, in the billions of dollars of insurance that I've sold, um, it doesn't matter how good of a driving record you've had historically. It is literally. It is there. Are, there are milestones in their algorithms that they just want to push you off.
6: What should I, as a uh, as a child, look for in my parents to say, "Hey, mom, it's time to stop." Now, in my case, we we went through this two years ago, and and fortunately, it was relatively simple. Uh, yeah, she didn't fight it, but I, you know. That's a period where you're losing your freedom. You're losing your ability to to do things for yourself. So, so what are some of the benchmarks that that we need to look for as as children to talk to our parents?
9: Yeah, there are certainly things. There are certainly you know signs, right? I mean the the vision is decreasing, moving slower. There there are certainly those signs that are pretty um, that are pretty visible. But there's also ego involved, right? Nobody nobody wants to face the fact that, you know, um, physically they're going through these changes. This is one of those places where, where one, self-actualization really matters. Being honest, can you really see, can you really respond like you need to to be in a vehicle? Um, Certainly freeway versus, you know, residential road, there's probably two different benchmarks for that. But the thing is, and this is and and when somebody can't, when somebody, you know, isn't willing, and when somebody's like that, you know, staunch, you know, I'm not, you know, I can drive, I'm just fine. You really in those cases, if you can make it about other people, one, if that person gets injured, then their family's going to care and they're gonna be sad, right? And so it does, it does impact other people. The other thing is accidents are usually two car incidents. And so, and so if you, if you get in an accident, you also have the potential to hurt somebody else and kill somebody else. It's not just about you.
6: Uh, what haven't we talked about?
9: Um, I think that's the key. The key is genuinely, gen- genuinely be honest with yourself about your abilities um, because you really can turn your family's life up upside down and other people, other families lives upside down.
0: That was insurance expert, Paul Moss from hey Driver speaking with Eric Douglas. The interview was part of the series Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. The interview was part of the series Getting Into Their Reality, Caring for Aging Parents. For more, visit our website at wvpublic.org. The massive Norfolk Southern derailment in eastern Ohio near the Pennsylvania border shocked many of us who live near railroads. Rail lines wind throughout Appalachia, carrying everything from coal to heavy equipment to chemicals. Following the accident earlier this month, residents of East Palestine are back in their homes, though not without some lingering worries. Ten of the train's 50 cars carried hazardous materials, including vinyl chloride, a volatile suspected carcinogen. It's a colorless gas used primarily to make PVC. The accident prompted an evacuation of over 5,000 residents. Toxins went into the air and seeped into the local water supply. Last week, after air sampling showed no elevated level of toxic chemicals, officials announced that East Palestine residents could return home. Kurt Kohler of the Ohio Environmental Protection Agency said the water near the site had also been tested. The unfortunate side, those were immediately toxic to fish, but all the information and data
5: to date is it has still been protective for the drinking water uh, as it applies
6: for drinking water standards.
0: The Allegheny Front reported water samples from several waterways were being taken daily to ensure the continued safety of drinking water. Also, the East Palestine Police Department announced that a potable well task group was going to go knock on doors of homes that have been identified as having at-risk drinking water wells in the area. This story is ongoing. Plastics are in the ground, in the water, and even in our bodies. It's a growing problem for the health of people and the planet, and solutions are needed to address it. One solution is being touted by the plastic industry itself, chemical recycling. But it's expensive and unproven, and critics say it's part of the problem. Kara Holzapel has more from the Allegheny Front.
10: A new peer-reviewed study by the National Renewable Energy Lab in Colorado looked at the costs and environmental impacts of current and new technologies for recycling plastic. James Bruggers wrote about it for Inside Climate News. I asked him why plastic is a difficult material to recycle in the first place.
3: Well, plastics were never designed to be recycled. They're made of polymer chains and Chemical additives, many of them are toxic. These additives are meant to give the material different properties like flexibility, texture, clarity, and color. There's literally like thousands of chemicals that can go into making plastic. And when you're trying to recycle them, I mean, with glass, it's just glass. You just recycle it back into glass. But each of these different kinds of plastics are different, especially when they get all mixed up. Like when you put them in a, you know, in a recycle bin out in the front yard or something waiting to get picked up that mixed plastic becomes even more complicated because it's all mixed together.
10: The researchers looked at a number of plastic recycling methods, and two, what they call advanced recycling or chemical recycling methods stood out as problematic. Pyrolysis and gasification. Can you explain briefly what these methods entail and why they aren't great for the environment?
3: The study didn't actually focus on pyrolysis and gasification, but it did mention them and it did use them as a reference. Pyrolysis and gasification both use a lot of energy and heat, and there's emissions associated with that as well. And they're designed to turn the plastic back into, you know, these chemical building blocks. And the study focused on chemical recycling methods that could actually be considered closed loop, which means that the product out the end of that process could be turned back into plastic in a reasonable amount. And pyrolysis and gasification didn't even sort of make the cut of being closed loop. And as a matter of fact, they found that only like 1 to 14 percent of the plastic that was sent through those processes can actually be retained as plastic. Usually pyrolysis and gasification, you know, are used to make fuel and just turning plastic waste into fuel isn't considered recycling.
10: You write that the plastics industry is looking to have advanced plastics recycling categorized and regulated by states as a manufacturing process and not as a waste disposal. Legislation has been passed in 21 states doing just that, including Pennsylvania. What are the implications of that classification?
3: The uh, chemical industry or plastics industry would argue that the implications of that is to give support for what they say is an answer to the plastics crisis that we have in the United States and globally. I mean, it's a really big crisis. It's, it's like 400 million tons of plastic waste is generated each year globally. And that's twice as much as a couple decades ago. And you know, most of it's dumped in landfills or burned in incinerators or littered across the environment. A lot of gets in the ocean. So they would argue that we need to streamline the regulatory process to encourage this whole new technology. The environmental community that is fighting chemical recycling or advanced recycling, as the industry likes to call it, they see this as more of a sort of marketing ploy. There's a lot of pressure on the industry to do something about the problem. And by touting chemical recycling, they can say, see, look, this is what we're doing. But, it's, you know, at this point, it's just it's sort of questionable about whether or not it's actually going to be a, a real solution or not.
10: James Bruggers covers the U.S. Southeast for Inside Climate News National Environment Reporting Network. You can read his story at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holzapel.
0: Last summer, torrential rains brought flooding and destruction to parts of eastern Kentucky, West Virginia, and southwestern Virginia. Among the communities hit was the town of Heinemann, Kentucky, home to the Appalachian Writers' Workshop at the Heinemann Settlement School. When the floods began, the Writers' Workshop was midway through its week-long session. Several campus buildings were damaged but all of the students and faculty there eventually made it home safely recently the school announced plans for this year's Appalachian Writers Workshop bill lynch spoke with workshop organizer josh mullins they began by talking about last year's flooding tell us what happened last year at the workshop
7: during Last year's workshop uh, is when the floods impacted the region, so we had around 80 uh, to 100 folks staying with us here on campus uh, whenever word came that cars were going under, that uh, they were floating away, that some of the dorms where folks were staying in were, you know, water was creeping closer and closer. Our staff here got together as quickly as we could, because not everybody lives on campus, rallied together as quickly as we could, tried to get folks up and out and into better, safer places. But the end result of that was the workshop didn't get to, to finish. We had completed around three three days and not five. And so our keynote presentation that was supposed to be Thursday evening and two more days of class were cut short as we tried to safely get folks out of Hyman and headed back towards home. And then so we could here begin to shift to really housing folks on campus in those same same dorms that were being used for the workshop to, to offer Housing and emergency shelter, food for for people whose homes had been damaged or completely destroyed.
6: How much damage did the uh, school take?
7: Five buildings on campus took on on water, including our main administrative office building um, and our archive space. Uh, one of our classroom buildings, our our kind of historic founders' cabin and museum, a greenhouse, and then two other kind of private residents that we have.
6: After the damage of the float, was there any concern that maybe this uh, this writer's workshop wouldn't happen next year?
7: No, there never really was a consideration that we wouldn't hold the workshop in 2023. You know, once the the dust settled um, and we, you know, got campus and the community kind of back into a better position, and uh, we immediately began the planning process again. Uh, we've held the workshop for 45 years, of uh, the COVID 19 pandemic, uh, we held it virtually in hybrid formats in the years following that. So and this really was in 2022, 20, uh, was our real first time back being fully on campus with the full kind of attendance and capacity audience that we have. Um, of course, it, it was cut short, but we never considered that the workshop wouldn't happen. Um, and we're excited to be able to announce that all of our fa- faculty and staff are back with us this year.
6: Tell me who's coming. What, what can people expect?
7: Yeah, so this year's workshop, we're very excited. Uh, that our, our Jim Wayne Miller, James Still, keynote address lecturer this year, uh, which will be on that Thursday evening of the workshop, I believe July the 27th. Uh, I be Kentucky Poet Laureate and NAACP Image Award winner Crystal Wilkinson, who is the author of Perfect Black and many other novels and, and, and poetry collections. Uh, we'll have two novel sections. Uh, two poetry sections, a cr- creative nonfiction, and a uh, short story section. Uh, those will be led by David Joy, uh, Angela Jackson Brown, Nima Avashia, Doug Van Gundy, Miriam Worthington, and Misha Marin.
6: How do you choose your, your faculty and your speakers?
7: Now, when we're looking at putting the faculty together for each year's workshop, we really try to do a couple things. One is we want to honor you know, the tradition of the workshop and and the region by, by, by bringing people back that have taught with us before, who have been prior attendees of the workshop, that have uh, perhaps books that we have published through our imprint, Fireside Industries, in partnership with the University of Press of Kentucky. Then we also look for those who are kind of new and emerging voices in Appalachian literature, um, Uh, who have a strong commitment to this place and its people, making sure that we're representing a wide array of voices. So we always want to make sure that uh, we're being true to Appalachia and the diverse makeup of, of the people that live here and the faculty that we that we hire to come to the workshop.
6: How many writers come out to learn?
7: Our capacity is 72. We admit 12 individuals um, into each of the six genre sections that we offer each year.
6: That seems pretty focused.
7: It is. It is a selective process to be admitted to come. You know, if you don't really register for the workshop as much as you apply, a blind review panel evaluates manuscripts, and then based on that, people are admitted into one of 12 slots for each of the six sections that we offer
6: after last year's flood uh, any lessons learned uh, any preparations for something like that again or can can you prepare for something like that you
7: know we really always try to be prepared for any possible event every year that I've been here at the settlement school I'm going in my seventh year now there's always some sort of some sort of campus event that, that takes place you know is the toilet gonna overflow is uh, is there a snake gonna uh, slither up from the uh, from the creek and kind of cause chaos you know that's just kind of the nature of it and so we did not even our best laid plans of, of being prepared for the emergencies I don't think we were able to grasp the the sheer, severity of the situation, the widespread nature of it throughout Knott County, eastern Kentucky as a whole. But with that said, we have definitely learned from that. You know, we have better plans in place now than we ever have, and we would welcome folks to come back and be with us this year and, and to learn from the great faculty that we have lined up.
0: Josh Mullins, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. More information about the Hindman Settlement School and the Appalachian Writers Workshop can be found on the school's website, org. final story brings us to a small town on the border of Virginia and West Virginia. For decades on the Virginia side, graves of the black residents who helped build the community were neglected in the town's segregated cemetery. And it might have stayed that way if it hadn't been for the efforts of one persistent woman whose family's buried there. Folkways reporter Connie Bailey Kitts brings us this story.
11: I grew up in Bluefield, Virginia, across the street from the town cemetery. My dad and I would go for walks there. He'd see a grave marker and tell me stories about the little girl who tried to save her siblings from a fire or his school friend shot down in World War II. But there was a whole segment of our community that he couldn't tell me about because their graves were overgrown and hidden in the woods until recently.
2: Susie, who did you see right
11: there? Who Oh, yeah, Trig. I knew some of the Trigs, yes. That's 96-year-old Thedia Harris talking to her daughter, Susie Green. They're searching for names that Thedia might recognize as we walk across the slope of Maple Hill Cemetery.
2: we got the grass
11: cut. Yeah, that looks good. Mm-hmm. got a chair up there to sit down. The grass hasn't always been cut, and there hasn't always been a place to sit down not back in the 1950s when Susie was a child.
2: My mother would bring us out here to see her mother's grave, but we couldn't see it, the marker, because it was nothing but brush. And it was hard for me as a child to understand how in the world is your mother buried over there and it's weeds. You're pointing to weeds.
11: This was the town's African-American cemetery. It was established in the 1890s. There was a larger cemetery for white residents as well. The two lie next to each other with a strip of pavement keeping them separate. Over the years, black families were increasingly unable to bury relatives in this section of the cemetery as it became completely overgrown with thick brush and trees.
3: And you know it's not going to be equal if it's separate because if it's equal, then why is it necessary to be separate?
11: Joseph Bundy is an African-American community historian. I spoke to him by phone. He was a longtime resident of the Bluefield area, and he remembers life under Jim Crow when segregation was cradle to grave.
3: When you were like born in segregation, you couldn't be born in the white hospital. You weren't accepted at, at your birth, and you're not going to be accepted at your death. The most sacred part of your existence being your birth and your death.
11: It wasn't until the 1950s and 60s that cemeteries in the South stopped segregating by race. Ruth Jackson is 91 and grew up next to Maple Hill Cemetery. She remembers watching the African-American funeral processions in the late 1930s.
2: They would come down and put the very end of Black Cemetery. They had their coffin in a wagon. I was a little tiny girl, five or six or seven. And uh, they would be singing. They sang all the way up the street, turning into the
3: cemetery. Oh, I'm so glad. Trouble don't last always. That's Joseph
11: Bundy singing Hush, Hush, a funeral song he learned from his father. The last funeral in the black section of Maple Hill Cemetery was in 1964. When I was a teenager in the 1970s, I used to cut through those woods, not realizing this is a burial place for nearly 300 people. Pastors, midwives, stonemasons, and veterans. And what I also didn't know was that the town owned both sections of the cemetery, though it only maintained the section reserved for whites. It might have stayed that way, too. But in the early 2000s, a volunteer working with the Historical Society made a discovery, and she realized something that others seemed to have forgotten. June Brown was looking through old town records when she found cemetery receipts for payments with the words colored section written on them. The town had owned the black graveyard, and it had sold burial plots to black residents.
2: I just thought, why are those graves not being taken care of? These plots were paid for.
11: A search of courthouse records later documented the town's original 1896 purchase of the land for the Black Cemetery.
2: But if it's a public cemetery, then you, you don't have the right not to take care of it. And that's
11: what I found in those papers. June says she thought about going to the town council to press them to do something about the neglected graves, but she felt uncomfortable. Bluefield is a small town, mostly white and she didn't want to make waves.
2: Looking back, I should have gone to the town council. I should have made a bigger stir about it. But I didn't do that. I regret that
11: now. But June did tell a former town manager, Art Mead, about the receipts. He had been manager when the town had put up a chain-link fence between the white and black sections in the late 1980s. Art began petitioning town officials to acknowledge ownership and remove the fence to take care of the abandoned cemetery. But he says some officials didn't want to hear about it.
0: The question I asked more than once is like, "Okay, we have white people on one side of this fence and black people on the other side. The land was owned by the town in both settings Fees were collected by the town, but yet we're treating the two sides differently. How does that not equate to racial discrimination?
11: It took about a year, but the town council finally voted to remove the fence and began clearing some of the brush. And that brings us back to Susie Green. In October 2007, about a year after the fence came down, Susie took a drive over to the Black Cemetery with her auntie Quilla, and she learned something she wasn't expecting. Her family had property rights in the cemetery.
2: When we drove up, she said, uh, now, Dad has a plot over here. And uh, I said, a plot? And she said, yeah, I have the original deed to the plot. I said, what? She said, yeah, I have the original because my mother gave it to me and told me to keep it.
11: And when Susie got a look at the deed, She saw that it was dated a hundred years, almost to the day they had been standing there. Susie saw that as providence, and it inspired her to take action. She contacted a local reporter, and the paper ran a front-page story with a photo of her aunt holding the notarized deed. She asked the town to clear more brush so her family and others could have access to their ancestors' graves, and she asked for a walkway and a plaque that would tell the story of the people buried there.
2: It's not about looking back and pointing a finger. With me, it never has been. It's about going forward and healing the, uh, the racism that caused this condition, just getting through it. And the best way I thought to get through it is to remember it as a point in history.
11: It would take Susie the next 15 years working with four different town managers to reach her goals. In 2012, the town council would vote to restore all of the African-American cemetery. But even then, Susie says it didn't go smoothly. At one point, the town brought in excavators and bulldozers to clear the site, displacing grave markers.
2: When we came out here and saw those huge yellow earth movers, and I thought, that's, that's not the way you do it.
11: When spring came, the town planted grass and began regular maintenance paid for by the town's perpetual care fund.
5: Good morning, Tasville We are celebrating a federal
11: holiday. In the summer of 2021, Virginia made Juneteenth a state holiday, and Susie took her family to the celebration in Tasville, the county seat. Susie made an announcement there.
2: We have been able to, to the Virginia Historical Resources to obtain a highway marker that will have the history of Maple Hill Cemetery. Been-
11: Five months later, on a cold and windy Thanksgiving weekend, a group gathered in the cemetery to witness the unveiling of that historical highway marker. Charlie Stacy, the county supervisor who represents the Bluefield area, was there.
1: The first thing that comes to my mind, I think, is an apology, that we should not have had to have an event like this. The folks buried behind me, for as much of making Bluefield, Virginia, what it is, or the folks buried in front of me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yet I never knew this section even existed.
11: We stood on a crest overlooking both sections, black and white, about 8,000 gravestones total. Susie told the crowd that naming the names is about more than restoring graves.
2: When we visit the graveyard, we are visiting the remnants of an African-American cultural system, a value system. We are touching base with the principles for which they stood. We may never see them on a postage stamps or streets and avenues named after them, but there was dignity in their lives, and there is dignity in their death.
11: Susie has commissioned a memorial of three tall granite stones that will include the names of those missing grave markers, and the town has pledged hush. to help pay for it. Hush,
3: somebody calling my name. Oh,
11: hush. For Inside Appalachia, hush. I'm Connie Bailey Kitts in Bluefield, somebody Virginia.
3: Somebody calling my name. Oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord, what shall I do?
0: A memorial to the black residents of Bluefield buried in the cemetery was placed earlier this year. And Connie tells us Susie Green is continuing to research other grave sites in Bluefield. Thanks to the late Dr. Jerry French for his help with research for this story and to Glenn Kittle of WVVA Television Bluefield. song Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Otis Gibbs, Del McCurry, Tyler Childers, and Amethyst Kia. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at in Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org insideappalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for
6: Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.